Amen. Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can. Get with me to John chapter 17. We'll also put verses up on the screen so you can follow along that way. But we're continuing our series on the church. We're looking at various passages that help us to understand who we are and what we are to be doing. As you turn there, uh, this is actually a part of what's called the farewell discourse um, and the prayer of consecration. At the very end of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, he gathered his disciples together knowing he was going to Calvary, going to the cross, and he gathered them together and he gave them some words of instruction and then he prayed over them and that's what we're looking at. And there's, there's something about the end of life that gives this laser-like focus. I remember sitting with my grandfather uh, as he was on his deathbed and having conversations with him. And I remember the, the change between the kind of conversations I would ordinarily have with my grandfather. And he was maybe the most bizarre individual I've ever met. He's an awesome man, Wayne Williams. And I remember the difference between sitting at his hospital bed and what he was talking about there versus, you know, being the wolf man handing out cookies at, a, at the cabin he built. Uh, those were two very different things. On his deathbed, there was a clarity about what mattered most. And we find that here as well. Even with the Lord, as he is nearing Calvary, as he is headed resolutely to the cross for us, he takes an opportunity with his disciples to clarify what this is all about. And what we find is that there is this mission of God, and it is to bring the glory of God into clear focus for the world. And the glory of God is revealed through the followers of Christ. So let's read the text. We'll pray and we'll get to work. We are in John 17 and we are going from verses 1 all the way to verse 19. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, 
and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your bride, the church, who we are and what we're to do, I pray that by your spirit in these moments, we would hear your voice loud and clear. That this would be like listening into that prayer. And we would understand then what you care deeply about. So help us in this time, please, we pray in your name. Amen. The mission of God is the glory of God displayed and revealed through the local church. When we think about the local church, what, what should come to mind is it is the community of believers who've been tasked with the job of making known the glory of God. And so we find these two things at play here in the text. We find the glory of God on display in verses 1 to 5. He prays like this, Father, the hour has come, my hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. He's, he's, he's asking that in this moment that the glory of God would be on display. He's, he's speaking with an awareness that the time now has come, that his hour, in, in his whole ministry, he kept saying, my time has not come yet. My time has not come yet. My time has not come. But now he says the hour has come. He understands what he is going to do. He has been telling it now to the disciples. He's told them repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over. I'll be executed, but I will come back. He knows exactly what he's up to, and he's moving toward that. And so he gives us a timestamp. This is the moment. Now may your glory be made plain. May it be revealed. May people see the value of who you are and what you've done. May they give you honor and praise. That's what the word glory is pointing at. It's recognizing that some things have more value than others. May your glory, God, be obvious. Now, all of us are glory hunters. We are looking for things that we think are valuable. We are always chasing after things and giving honor and praise. And the truth is, a lot of the stuff that we're pursuing really doesn't deserve that much consideration. A lot of the stuff that we think, man, if I could get that, that would be glorious. But a lot of the pursuits that we presently have aren't even really worth our time or energy. Jesus is praying that the glory of God would be the dominant feature of his people. One of the exercises that I think is a really, really good practice is to reverse engineer your life by writing your own eulogy. It's an idea that I got from Michael Hyatt Company, but basically write your own eulogy. He's at the end of his life. The Lord himself is saying, okay, as I'm coming to this hour, here's what I want to be true. Here's what I'm praying for. Here's what I desire. Here's what's really happening here. And so he's speaking about these significant realities. We ought to do the same thing. At the end of my life, what do I want Ash to say about me? At the end of my life, what do I want my kids to think about me? At the end of my life, what do I want the church to think about me being their pastor? At the end of my life, what do I want coworkers to think about what it was like to interact with me? Name that destination and then figure out, okay, well, how do I get there? Because what we're talking about when we do that is we're talking about things that are significant, things that are valuable. Well, Jesus, at the end of his life, is saying, here's what I most desire, glory. 
The hour has come, glorify your son. And here's what gives, gives him glory. It is his ability to give people spiritual life. Look at verse two. For you granted him, speaking of himself, you granted him, the son, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. The glory of Jesus Christ is the fact that he is able to take spiritually dead people and awaken them to God and help them to have this reality that's described throughout the book of, of John as eternal life or spiritual life. He's to be glorified. He's to be praised and honored and valued because that is his ministry. That is what he has come to do. He is able to give spiritual life. Look at verse 3. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is how people come to spiritual life. They, they know God. That's his ministry and that is his glory that he is offering people an opportunity to come to saving faith in him and therefore to be restored into a right relationship with their maker, that they would come to know God. That is the glory that he is after, and that is the glory that he obtained at the cross. In verses 4 and 5, he tells us that he has completed this ministry. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I am fulfilling, this is what he's saying, I'm fulfilling my earthly ministry. And that includes Calvary. And he will get to the cross, and from the cross he will say, it is finished. He does something there that offers us the ability to be imparted this eternal life. And therefore he is saying, may that glory resound. May people come to know that glory. May people come to share in that glory. That is his desire, that is his prayer, that is what he is after, that's what he wants his church to be about. We are a people who have personally experienced that glory. We have been imparted eternal life, and our job then is to make that known to the ends of the earth, to people in our communities, to people in our neighborhoods, to people across the globe. We say, this is why we exist as a church. God is glorious and he has done something glorious in the sending of his son, and we want everyone to know about that. We want to publish that good news. We want to be all about that good news. We want to awaken people by the power of the Holy Spirit to the reality of God so that they too might know him and know his son whom he sent. My son Harrison, I don't know where he's at because he wanders around. There he is. Um, he, uh, he is such a loving little dude. And his uh, love language is actually physical touch. So normally it's just him being like a koala bear on Ash or I, and he's just kind of expressing his love in that way. But he's also good at sharing uh, words of love as well. And so he'll say things like, Daddy, I love you so much. And I'll say, I love you too. And then we'll kind of have a contest, and he'll make up numbers, and he'll say, I love you, Google Terra, which in his mind are two of the biggest numbers ever. And so he'll say, I love you, and I'll say this thing. And then over the last two weeks, he's began saying something like this. He'll say, Daddy, I love you so much. I'll say, I love you too, dude. And then he says, I love you as much as I love Jesus. And I was like, oh, dude, that's awesome. I love you too, man. But then one of the things that we started talking about, because he said this like three or four times recently, and so I, I told him, hey, bud, I love you too, and I'm so glad that you love me that much, but I'm going to be okay if you love Jesus more than me. And I tell him, actually, Harrison, 
um, all the stuff that you love about me, all the stuff that comes to mind when you think about your daddy and the things that you appreciate, Jesus is actually the one who put that stuff in me. He's the one who made me. All the stuff that you love. And then I told him, oh, and also love. That's his idea. Like he's the one who invented that. He's the one who did that in us. So if he made me the way that I am and he invented this idea of love, I'm going to be just fine if you actually love him way more than you love me. And in fact, I was thinking about it this weekend. I was thinking, you know, honestly, Harrison, some of the things that aren't lovely about me, like my inattentiveness sometimes or my um, impatience or my irritability uh, or being a grump. I was, I was working on a Lego kit yesterday. Um, Harrison got it for his birthday. It's a three-in-one kit. So it's one kit of Legos. It turns into three different things. We built it a long time ago, but yesterday he wanted to take it apart and make the other item. And so Ash was doing it, and I tagged in, and we're, I'm building this thing, and I'm like, I can't find the pieces. <laughs> and he comes up to me, and he puts his hand on me, and he goes, Daddy, are you grumpy? <laughs> no, I'm not grumpy. Just can't. See, even the stuff about me that Harrison tolerates, the things about me that you know, I gave you some small examples, but even the sinfulness in me that, that Harrison loves me regardless of, even those things, Jesus is redeeming. Like there's going to be a day where that's no longer true of me because the Bible says I will be glorified. I will be made like Christ. I'll never sin again in his presence. And so there's a day coming where Jesus takes even the bad things about me, the sinful things about me, and he reworks me and makes me complete in his image. So Harrison, you are free, my friend, to love Jesus way more than me. And actually, that is my hope for you, that you would love him far more than you love me. Now, here's what I just did. I illustrated what the church is supposed to do. What we are called to do is to make the glory of Jesus known to other people. We're supposed to be opening up the reality of, listen, I know you got all this other stuff in the world that you care deeply about. I know you got these pursuits that you're after. I know there's lots of things that you love. But let me tell you, there is one who deserves your praise and your adoration because he's better than anything else. He's the inventor of all the good things that you love. He's the one who gave you the ability to feel that passion and that excitement over things. He's the one who is able to take broken people and restore them. He's the one who's able to take sinful people and make them right. So that is what we're to do. We have a mission, and it is to make known the glory of God to the world. Well, how will that happen? Because Jesus completed his earthly ministry, and he peaced out. So what's the plan? Well, the plan is the glory of God advances through you and I, through his disciples. And that's where this is going to go in the remainder of our time. In verses 6 to 19, he begins to focus his attention and his prayer on his followers. And so we find out who they are in verses 6 to 10. Here, here, here are some of the details of what makes a person a follower of Christ. First off, there are people who have heard the message of God and believed it. So look at verse 8. He says, For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. Lots of people have heard things about God, but followers of Christ are those who have heard that message, and by faith they believe that message. They accept them for what they truly are. Not just as words or, you know, 
uh, religious words or a religious thing, but they hear it as the word from God. I gave them words that you gave to me, and they accepted them. That's what makes people followers of his. In Romans, it talks about this is how faith happens. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Followers of Christ are those who have heard not just content from the Bible, but they hear it as God's voice. I heard the message of Christ and I accept it for what it is. Verse six says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. That's the part I'm underlining here. They're people who hear God's voice and they have some kind of relationship to him. We'll look at this in just a moment, but they actually hear the word of God and they say, if God loves me like that, then I'm going to respond to whatever he says. They hear the word of God and they obey it. Verse 7, now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. When they think about Christ and the message of Christ, they think this is not just some random dude speaking to us or teaching us. This is from God. In fact, verse 8 goes on to say, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Followers of Christ are people who look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth and they say, you are no ordinary, ordinary Galilean. You're not just some dude. You're not just some teacher. You're not just some religious leader. You're not some spiritual expert that I can learn a little bit from. You are from God. That's what makes a person a follower of Christ, that they evaluate rightly that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the sent one from the Father. Well, they are yours, verse 6. You gave them to me. We have this relationship with God then. Verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those you've given me, for they are yours. Followers of Christ have a relationship with God. In fact, we could say it like this. We belong to him. He's, he, we are his, and he is ours. We we belong to him. We have a relationship with him. We've transferred from an independence to a right relationship with God the Father. He owns us, and that is a beautiful thing. We are his. In fact, the Bible says in other places, we are his, his treasure. We're the thing that he daydreams about. And so we have this beautiful relationship, and then it goes on to say, verse 10, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them, which is really incredible because here's what he's saying. That glory that he's talking about, it begins to come true through us. Glory has come to me through them. That they exist is an indication of that glory. That we exist, that we are a church, that we've gathered here on a Sunday morning brings Jesus glory because now we are the community of the redeemed and by us, us even just being here, He's receiving glory. We are those to whom he's imparted spiritual life. And so we bring glory to Christ. So the disciples are both the proof of Jesus' glory and the people who will advance it. And so let me show you here how he prays for us. Because he doesn't just say, I just want you to exist. You are bringing me glory by just being. That's true. But he says, I also have a task for you. You are the church you are a redeemed people, you have eternal life, but I'm going to pray for you because you have some work to do and you have to do that work in hostile territory. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. Here's what I'm looking at. I'm praying for them. Here's what he's going to pray. 
He has a bunch of different things that he outlines for us, but let me give you four items of prayer concern for the Lord for us. The first is protection. We live in a hostile environment, and if we're going to be advancing the glory of God on the earth, we will need his protection because we are dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have things that are arrayed against us to prevent us from advancing that mission. The world itself is hostile to the things of God. The flesh within us give us all kinds of excuses of why we don't do these things. And the devil himself is crafty and cunning, and he is trying to hamstring our efforts. So how does he pray? Now that I'm gone, Lord, would you please protect them? Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. So Jesus says, these people will need protection because there will be hostility, there will be uh, opposition to the advancement of the glory of God, so they need protection. While I was there, I protected them, but I'm no longer there. Verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. He's saying, look, while I was physically present on the earth, I took the power of that name that you gave me, and I protected that flock that you entrusted to me. All that are yours, I kept safely, except for Judas, obviously. But he says, I protected them. But now in my absence, now in my departure, I will no longer remain in this world. Will you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of that name? Will you keep them safe? Will you keep them on task? Will you keep them pursuing the glory of God in the face of the earth? And then he prays like this. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. He's saying, look, I want them protected because what they're going to do is dangerous. I want them protected by the power of this great name because I'm asking for them to do something that is quite dangerous. Um, It's funny, but as a parent, I am incredibly cautious. And I say it's funny, maybe ironic, because I was the daredevil in our family. I was the one who broke everything in my body and who was the guinea pig for any dangerous activity. Um, I was the daredevil. But as a parent, I want my kids to be incredibly safe. I want to remove them from situations where they could be harmed or hurt. I want them to wear helmets and pads and all the stuff that I never even bothered purchasing for myself. But I want them to be safe. Now, this is not a comment on parenting. This is just illustrating the point of what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't really care about your safety. I know that's an overstatement. I'm trying to use hyperbole. But what what he is saying is the mission of the glory of God is way more important than your comfort or your safety. I'm going to send them out in my name into hostile territories and, and Honestly, he's not thinking like, how can I just keep them in a little bubble? How can I keep my followers just safe? I just want to kind of corral them around and make sure they never get around anything dangerous. No, he says, no, I'm sending them. So now they need protection. They're going to the front lines. They're going into enemy territory. They're going into hostile environments. So here's what they need, the power of my great name. They need protection because the mission puts them in harm's way. So the church, we are a people. We're not retreatists. We're not to withdraw from culture or society. God is sending us 
And he's saying, this is going to be hard and it's going to be dangerous and you're going to get some bumps and scrapes along the way, but I will protect you by the power of my great name. So we are, we're safe in that sense. He will always look after us and his great name is powerful. Well, another concern that he has for us is our unity. Verse 11, he puts it like this, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He's saying, protect them, bless them. Here's the reason why. Here's what I want for them, that they might be unified. They might be one. Now, we're not talking about uniformity. I'm not saying everyone in here, we're going to think the same. We're going to be the same. We're going to do the same sorts of things. No, he's saying there is a, there's a unity that honors diversity. In fact, he's saying it's kind of like the Godhead. He's saying, let them be one just as we are one. He's talking about the fact that within God himself, there's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And they are working in harmony because they are one, but they are three persons in the one Godhead. There's a diversity and a unity present in God. And he's saying this is a concern for the church. As we've been going through this series, one of the themes that keeps emerging, every time I open up a passage and I'm looking at a section that's dealing with the church, unity seems to show up. It is a great concern to the Lord himself. He wants us to be a unified people. We're going to spend a lot of time on it next week, Lord willing, so I'm not going to belabor the point here, but this is something that we have to pay attention to. We have to be a people who are pursuing the unity that Jesus is praying for us. He tells us that we actually display something of glory when we work in harmony. Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, he put it like this. I'll share this quote. It's a little unsettling, but it goes like this. The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable, I'm sorry, excuse me, observable love toward all Christians. He gives the right to, to the world to, to look at us and to evaluate the reality of Christianity based off of whether or not we actually love each other. He, Jesus himself put it like this. He said, all people will know that you're my followers by your love for each other. That's why this unity thing is such a big deal because it's, it's meant to be this display of God's glory. When we come together, we live in a divided world. We live in a world that is partisan. We live in a world that is hostile. It's us against them. It's them. Or, you know, we're dealing with all these different powers at play. But within the church, Jesus is praying for us that we would be unified, that we would be one, that we wouldn't look at other people and think, I care more about how you voted than about the fact that Jesus shed his blood for you. I care more about, I'm more connected with you if you share my ideologies than if you share in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be unified and he prays in that direction and may we aim in that, in that way then because I don't want to fall short of what Jesus is praying for us. Well, a third concern for us is our joy. Look at verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He's praying for us, not that we would be a somber people, 
Not that we would be a people who just kind of are dutiful, like, oh, this is what God wants us to do. We're advancing the mission. No, he says, I am praying that my joy would reside in them, even in the midst of hostility. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. I want them to have joy even though there's hostility toward them. Even though they're hated, there's a way for Christians to be full of joy. So what does that look like? Well, the writer to the Hebrews talks to a group of believers and puts it like this. He says, do you remember what it was like when you initially believed? And, and the, the group of people that he's writing to, I, I'm not sure all the details, but apparently they went to a prison visitation of other believers. And maybe while they were there, their, their property was ransacked. Their homes were ransacked. Things were taken away from them. And here's how it goes in Hebrews 10, 34. It says, you suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. See, Jesus is saying, I'm praying for my people, not that it would just go well for them, not that life would just be easy for them. The world is gonna hate them. I'm praying so that they would have this full measure of my joy in them. I'm praying that they would experience this joy that transcends circumstances, that doesn't just depend on everything going the way that we hope, but it, it's there because we are a redeemed people, because we've experienced something of the glory of God. We have this full measure of joy in us. So he's praying for that. We should be praying for that for our church. Let us be a joyful people even when it's incredibly hard, even when we're hated. Well, finally, he prays for our dedication. He prays that we would be the kind of people who are set apart to the task of advancing the glory of God. We are a sent people. You'll see it here in a moment. We are, we are a missionary people of God. He sends us. That's why as a church we say this is going to be the dominant feature of how we kind of organize and think and strategize. We want to be the missionary people of God because that's what the Bible says. We're a people who are sent. We're not just about everyone coming together. We do that for sure, but we want to send people out week by week. We want to commission people to go do life on mission. So he prays in that direction. Verses 15 and 16, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Here's what we find then. He's saying, I'm praying for my missionary people that they would be in the world, but not of the world. That they would be present in culture, but they would be different. I'm praying for my followers to be sent in this direction and to reveal the glory of God. I'm praying that, we, that the church would be culturally engaged. Um, nothing against a monastic lifestyle that says we should, we should step back, we should retreat, we should engage in spiritual disciplines for our own benefit. I think there's value in all of that. But when we look at the Bible, I think that what Jesus really wants for his people is not just that we would retreat from culture and say, that's dangerous. I don't want to catch whatever they have. I don't want to be contaminated by culture. I don't want my kids getting harmed by this. No, he says, I'm not praying that they would be removed from that. I'm praying that they would be protected in that because they are a sent people. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How do we live in the world but not of the world? How, how do we engage in culture but we're different? 
Well, he tells us right here, it's according to the, the truth. He says, look, the way that the people of God can be in culture but not the same as culture is when we start to look like the truth in the word. When we start to display the beauty of Christ's likeness that he gives us. That's what sanctify means. It means to be set apart and to be growing in our Christ likeness. He's saying, look, Lord, would you please make them different? So when you show up at work tomorrow, people will think this is not just like every other employee in our organization. This person is a Christian and it's obvious. They're different. If I watch how they talk to people or talk to customers or talk to coworkers, it's different. If I watch and observe what they care deeply about, I notice that they have some, some different priorities. They are a different people, a people who are set apart by the word of truth. But we are sent. Look at verse 18. It's one of my favorite verses when I consider the church. Jesus says to his followers, as you sent me, God, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The, the church is the missionary people of God. Jesus says, just like the Father sent me, I take my followers and I send them. I'm sending them into the world. And the reason why this can be successful is because of what he did on the cross. Look at verse 19 in closing. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Friends, we're not going to do this in our own strength. We're not going to move into culture and think we can be radically different if we just try hard enough. Or maybe if we have a slick plan. Maybe if we strategize, we can make this thing happen. No, the reason why we can go into culture sent by the Lord himself and be different is because of his work for us. His willingness to lay down his life on the cross so that we too may be truly set apart to him and to his mission. So church, here's, here's who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. We are the missionary people of God. God cares deeply about his glory being made known. You have a task. You have, you have a, a role in this project. We're not simply going to keep coming together to do church. We don't just care about Sunday morning. We actually care about Monday through Saturday as well. And we're saying, look, you guys are the plan. You're the plan of Jesus. You're the plan of Park City Church. We're going to equip and train you. We're going to send you out. We're going to deploy you week by week. The glory of God can be made known to the watching world through you. As the Father has sent the Son, He sends you into the world. Let's pray. Lord, I ask right now that in each of our hearts and minds that you would inspire us to this way of life. This is so radically different. To think about church as more than a meeting, but to think about it as an identity and a calling and a task to make known your glory. Lord, that's heavy stuff. That's weighty stuff. And, and we feel ill-prepared for it. So we're very grateful, Jesus, for your prayers. That you are praying for us. We're so desperate for the Holy Spirit because we can't do this on our own. But we believe that this is the calling that you've given to your followers. And so we, may we be found faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.